Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome everyone to a special week for the podcast. We have a change in name to At The Margin. Same great podcast, new great name. A lot of listeners have mentioned that discussions here are of interest to those around the world, not just in Ireland. And you know what? I think they're probably right. So to help others find the podcast, we will now be known as At The Margin. Economists think At The Margin and hopefully this new title reflects that. We'll still have great conversations with top economists from Ireland and abroad, and this week we have a very special double bill. In this first part, we welcome Professor Patrick Honohan, Honorary Professor of Economics at Trinity College Dublin. Professor Honohan has held many positions, most notably as Governor of the Central Bank during the financial crisis of 2008, or more accurately, in the recovery of the financial crisis post-2008. Professor Honan has also held positions with the ESRI, the World Bank, and as an economic advisor to Gareth Fitzgerald when he was Taoiseach. We discussed the role of central banks, the financial crisis, from his perspective, and Professor Honan gives his view on financial regulation into the future. If you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash at the margin. I've updated the Patreon handle to reflect a new name. We're on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at the margin too. Okay, so I kick off the discussion by asking Professor Honan what he considers a highlight of the stages of his career before his stint as governor of the central bank. I, I've been very lucky in uh, the, the people that I've encountered and the environments in which I've encountered them to, um, you know, to learn all sorts of different aspects of what you know, effectively is combined in central banking. My first job after university, after a primary degree, was uh, I, I used to write the minutes of the uh, board, the executive board of the IMF. So you had there around the table, you had international civil servants, you had representatives, sort of quasi-ambassadors in different countries. And uh, you learn so much about the administrative process and how decisions are made. And, and uh, it's uh, the world of, the world of explanation between civil servants and policymakers. And then, of course, I went back to university, went back to the LSE, and there, you know, there are such brilliant 
people there, they're a lot of them dead now, but um, uh, I mentioned Terence Gorman because he was from Fermanagh um, and, and uh, spent well, most of his life in, in, in British universities in Birmingham, London, Oxford and that. But you learn there about understanding, about what you know and what you don't know, what people know and what people don't know and, and the, the level of, of checking and you need. And then another big part of my um, experience was in the 1980s when I was working as an uh, economic advisor to Gary Fitzgerald. He, he was teacher. And that was a completely different world, a world of, of decision-making and of persuasion. So there's explanation and there's understanding and then there's persuasion, which is politics is all about persuasion and, and uh, bringing people together. So uh, really, um, I, I just um, spent my whole life learning from in, in different walks of life those are the sort of three dimensions to it um so going on to discuss about central banking um and so we have a lot of listeners some people who will be economists and will know this quite well and other people perhaps more casual people with an interest but perhaps the details can be a little bit lost because i think a lot of times when we're talking about these things we sort of skip the fundamentals and but when we talk about a central bank maybe you could help us to start from the start and say something about, well, what exactly the role of a central bank is, maybe in a more sort of abstract context, and then in the context of what we have at the moment, where we have, say, the ECB, and then the Irish Central Bank sort of sits within that, and how what is the role for the Irish Central Bank in that context? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, central banks, it's, it's, the purpose of central banks is, is to, is to have, make sure that the, the framework of money is a stable and productive one. Um, you know, there weren't central banks originally. Sometimes there were there were just kings who, who would um, make coins out of, of precious metals and so on and so forth. But then banks came up, and banks didn't always work very well, as we know. Sometimes they don't work very well now. And and some of the leading banks became sort of graduated into becoming central banks, which had a kind of took it on themselves to stabilize a system which wasn't suiting them when. You know, fly-by-night banks would, would um, misbehave and also were given certain responsibilities by the state. So that's the function of central bank now is to look after the money, if you like. Uh, and it means not sort of sl- splashing out money in a, to an extent that would generate price rises that would be self-defeating, um, but it also goes beyond that. And some central banks have greater responsibilities than others. Some supervision of banks, supervision of non, non-bank financial institutions like insurance companies, that's sometimes held within a central bank in countries where they think that uh, it's sensible to centralize this kind of information and power. And in other countries, no, they're con- more concerned about uh, fearing centralization of power in a central bank. And they say, no, no, you just look after currency and money. And, and don't we look after the soundness of banks in another institution, and we look after the soundness of insurance companies in another institution. So you have quite a lot of variety of, of uh, central banking models these days, but all driven by the motivation to make sure the money system is a, a, a good and sound platform on, on which to build what other people want to do with, with, um, with their um, economic activities. You asked about um, about the, the 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 euro area, of course, and that's that's a that is a a strange development in a way because it's it's building 
a structure that has never really been seen before uh, of a not in one country, but in many countries pulling together on a single currency. Uh, previously, countries did use other people's currency, like uh, Panama uses the United States currency, and you know, uh, the Republic of Ireland used um, sterling for, for many, many years, 50 years. But it's a different thing to have now 19 countries coming together and saying, well, we just have one money, one central bank. Um, so it's one central bank, but it's also 19 plus one central banks because they didn't just abolish all the national central banks in the euro area. Uh, each, each country has its own central bank. But in terms of monetary policy, in terms of stabilizing money and ensuring the prices don't um, rise too rapidly and don't fall, um, the, um, that is a task done by the European Central Bank but the European Central Bank, in turn, is governed by a governing council on which you have the 19 governors of each central bank and then six um, executive directors, including the president and the vice president. So it's a very, um, a, a very interesting and strange combination. It's a centralization of power on money in Europe that goes well beyond any other centralization in the European Union. Lots of things are done on a common basis in the European Union, but the, um, the institution of the European Central Bank is the most, if you like, federalist institution um, or federal style institution that, that exists in Europe. Yeah, so it sounds it's more of a, a two-way street than maybe people might, might, might think in that the natural central, national central banks are playing a role in the direction of... The, the European Central Bank and and vice yeah. versa, and and the point that's worth making on on monetary policy matters as whether the interest rates should be increasing or falling. Should should there be more purchases of government securities in the interests of of ensuring that uh, prices rise close to two percent per annum? And those decisions are taken on. Well, it, it used to be up until a few years ago, it was a, a one person, one vote. Uh, among the members of the governing council. So I had a vote that was as valuable as the vote of, of the, the uh, president of the Bundesbank or the, or the um, uh, governor of the Banque de France, uh, any of those big countries. And the same was true of the, even as tiny countries like, like, um, like Malta uh, at one vote. Now, now there's a, as was decided from the very start, when the countries became very numerous, they said, well, this is, you can't have everybody voting. The number of votes are too great. So the votes rotate so you you get you you the governor of the central bank of malta will be out for a couple of months and then he'll be back in in terms of the who has the voting rights right. but still it'll be on the basis of one person one vote when the votes are taken okay that's very interesting um and you mentioned i think in your book about uh currency choice and how that influences um central banks i wonder could you maybe tell us a bit about that yeah, well, that's the old, whole, whole debate that's, um, that's been going on for 100 years now is um, fixed exchange rates or flexible exchange rates, which is better. There were times in the late 19th century when most of the countries of, the, you know, the more developed countries uh, homed in on fixing their exchange, their currencies to gold, have the gold standard. It didn't last as long as a lot of people think. That people think it lasted for hundreds of years. Probably the gold standard, the golden era of the gold standard, lasted for about a quarter of a century. 
And then during the 1930s, um, central banks found they couldn't hold on to that gold peg and they, uh, their currencies de devalued. And there was a, a period of competitive devaluation. Uh, so after the Second World War, this question of restoring fixed exchange rates uh, came back to the fore and there was a fixed exchange rate regime brought in after the Second World War and most countries signed up to that. It was a fixed but adjustable. You know, if you, if you really got out of line, you could adjust your, your peg, you devalue, but then you'd leave it fixed against the dollar, which was the, the mighty dollar for uh, uh, as long as, as possible. But lots of academics, like Milton Friedman famously in the mid-1950s, one of his most famous interventions was to argue that floating exchange rates would be better and that uh, governments would make a mistake establishing central banks that were trying to fix exchange rates. So this debate has gone backwards and forwards. In the 1970s, the fixed exchange rate regime broke down in large part. In the 1980s, people started to try to restore a degree of pegging when they saw the high inflation that occurred in the 1970s. What I point out, um, as far as I can read the, the evidence, the success, the wider economic success of countries it doesn't really depend on whether they chose a fixed exchange rate regime or a flexible exchange rate regime. It really depends on them having the supporting policies appropriate to each type of regime. And countries have performed well under both types of regime, and they perform badly under both types of regime. So we had a period in the, in the 1990s when the was a pegged system exchange rate mechanism of the European Union um, in the 1980s, sort of broke down in 1992. And we had a period of seven or eight years in the Republic of Ireland where the exchange rate was not fixed in, in any way to a peg. Economic performance was very good in that time. And then we had a period as soon as we adopted, gave, put the Irish pound to one side and adopted the euro in 1999, we had a period of years there where things seemed to go very, very well. So fixed and flexible, uh, not an obvious choice. Within a European context, for a country that's really signed up to the European project uh, and, and greater integration, it's, it's, that makes it easy to say, OK, we'll go for the common currency because we're, we know that we can't really do much better by having a floating exchange rate. If we have good policies with the common currency, we can do as well or better than, than uh, we could do with a floating exchange rate. That's really interesting. Um, I, and it reminds me, I read Colin McCarthy mentioning the role of, of the euro and your membership in the crisis. And I don't know which side he came down on, so I can't, but it, he, he definitely <laughs> brought up the argument. But your argument there that, you know, the, the policies and structures that are in place really is what drives the performance. And maybe that, that sort of... Uh, makes a lot of sense and in, in a sense that correlation does not necessarily imply causation. Um, and that sort of leads us into maybe discussing, you, you mentioned the 90s where things were going quite well, but we were not necessarily in a great position coming into the crisis. Uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about your, your thoughts on that. In, in a way, when, when we, um, we joined the euro, I think governments and central bank sort of sat back and said, um, 
we've all that money stuff is solved. All that international payment stuff is all solved because we're in the euro area. Nothing can go wrong. So they relaxed their vigilance, and uh, it it became a formulaic approach to monetary policy. Oh, yes, we have a central bank, and what are the rules? Yeah, we'll do all the things that it says in the rules. Box checking approach, rather than a sense that actually this is quite a dangerous mm. regime, um, because if you 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 can easily go badly wrong, especially by um, exaggerated amounts of credit, uh, overspending by government. Those things will call cause very severe damage in a, when you don't have your own currency and you're you're using another currency which is not geared up specially to how uh, how, how expansive your spending is. So, uh, so I, I think that to some extent the problems that arose were problems because the government and the central bank didn't pay enough attention to the need for properly managed and disciplined um, policies in the years uh, of the early years, early decade, the first decade of the, of the euro area. And, and that was particularly, of course, on the banking side. Yeah. Because the banks, which were being supervised by the central bank, for the banks were, were allowed to do basically whatever they wanted. Um, I think there was a lack of confidence in the central bank about their ability or, or to second guess banks like uh, Bank of Ireland, Allied Irish Bank, people thought, well, these are well-run institutions have been around for years and years, though they had made some uh, conspicuous mistakes in the 1980s and 1990s, but there was a sense that these were people who knew how, who knew their business, and of course you're supervising them, but you're supervising without expecting to find anything that uh, yeah. would cause you to r- really... Uh, Put in, put in the um, it, it put, seem, pull them in and stop them. It seems like it's it's an art as much as a science because you need to get a feel for what's going on, get a feel for what what to expect and to regulate in that sense, as opposed to maybe just having, as you say, the form the formula and following the formula. Not all the formula doesn't always. Uh, account for everything that goes on we're dealing with people i suppose at the end of the day well i think that i think that's absolutely right i mean there are some of it can be made scientific you can improve your accounting systems you can uh, you can establish risk weights and that are that, that sort of capture the, the degree to which some activities of banks are riskier than others but as soon as you try to formalize it into a, a semi-scientific uh, uh, thing there is a, a temptation then for reckless market participants to say, ah, now I see what, what the rules, the scientific mm-hmm. rules they are following. I'm going to find a way around that. I'm going to, they, they establish these rules for normal circumstances. Well, I'm going to do something that's a bit different to what they anticipated and that uh, will cause the problems. In a way, you could say, uh, and that's where then the, the second level, the art rather than science comes in. The second level says, ah, come on. Look, I know they're complying with everything, but this is evidently risky because we didn't think of A, B, C, and D, and these are now becoming the emerging risks. Yeah. And you can ask, um, so if you look around many, many countries in the, in the early 2000s, all of the advanced countries, you could say, had credit booms. The various developments in international financial regulation or deregulation and of the the huge surpluses of countries like China providing 
investable funds to the world banking uh, systems, that just created an environment where banks were able and inclined uh, to lend too much. So how, how did Ireland get into so much difficulty? Well, lots of countries got into difficulty, but their regulators or their bankers had said, well, okay, we are bending the rules a bit, but we're not bending them too much. I mean, enough is enough. Mm. So although, you, you know, you could look in a country like, um, say, United Kingdom, big banks there basically failed. But they lost about the same number of dollars or euros or pounds as the Irish banks relative to a much bigger system. Mm. So they went down, but they went down by a smaller percentage, if you like. So there were losses right across Europe. I think I counted 14 or 15 countries in Europe that had um, quite serious banking losses and the governments had to uh, or, or decided to uh, pay for those losses. Ireland mm. allowed the boom to go on to an extent that other countries had not. Had, they had said, no, wait a minute, we're not going to do that. We'd, we'll go far, but we're not going to go that far. I like when you say people pick out rules and try to find ways to work around them. It's an unusual to draw a parallel between um, central banking and something like, but if you look at other like sports or other sort of technical competitions, that's exactly what people do. So this is, this is, this is the behavior that's common across all sorts of uh, spheres. I absolutely agree with that. And I think if you take one good example, which is sort of a contemporary example, is um, Dieselgate, the manipulation of the diesel, uh, the, the emission rules. Uh, so they say, well, what are the rules here? Um, and, and they say, well, well, it's very difficult to comply with these rules, American rules particularly, if, if we're to sell our diesel cars. So, but how do they test it? Or like this. So if we did this and this, the testing would allow us to pass. Okay, we're all right. So it's exactly the same kind of, of um, manipulation of rules that look on paper. It's like, oh, very good. I learned this in, in second year. This is the risk-weighted Basel rules. for this. Everything must go right there. But, but it won't if people try to, don't use it as a guidance for safety, but as a set of rules around which you can maneuver. And that's why a lot of people say, uh, you know, people like have a snappy one-liner. They say, oh, the mistake made before the crisis was it was a principle-based principles based regulation instead of a rules-based regulation. We should be more strict. We should have more rules. But that's wrong. It's, <laughs> there should be rules, yes. But you also need the principles to make sure that the rules are not being just complied with in a formulaic way and, and are not being abused. The principles, yet you must, on the one hand, you have to comply with the rules. But on the other hand, we are also being governed by principles. And mm. even if you're complying with the rules and the principle of risk reduction or, or prudent, uh, safe and sound banking is not being satisfied, we're going to come down on you like a ton of rain. Breaks, but they Going back to school, when I was in English class, my English teacher used to always say, when we were being introduced to a new poem, um, this is a way to, to find the key to unlock what was going on, and then every, all the pieces fell into place. And I think to understand the crisis, you have a nice little key to unlock unlocking uh, what's going on, and it was splitting it up into thinking about the fiscal crisis, uh, issues of wage competitiveness, and then perhaps the property bu bu bubble and banking crisis. And that helps in my mind anyway, uh, organize things. So maybe we could uh, discuss some of the different aspects there. You know, the funny thing is there are, there, there are three different layers. 
and, and you get these kinds of crises in different countries that have a, one layer is more important than the other and so forth. But they do interact. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. so we didn't have a fiscal crisis. Why did we have a fiscal crisis? So uh, to some extent, logically, we could say the banking crisis caused both the fiscal crisis and the competitive lack of, lack of competitors. Mm. But let's t- take it from the other way around. Why did we cause a fiscal have a fiscal crisis? And people usually say, "Oh, well, it's because of the bank guarantee," um, but that's not the whole story. In fact, it's not the biggest part of the story. Um, it's not about the bank guarantee. It's about the fact that the whole of government spending in the few years before the crisis had be and their tax revenues had become predicated on huge amounts of revenue from the property boom. So when people bought houses, they paid huge amounts of stamp duty. And they bought furniture to fit in the houses, and that made fat revenue. And anyway, the builders were doing a lot of um, building, and so there was a lot of uh, income tax uh, receipts. So there are huge revenue coming in. And the government, uh, one of the government uh, finance ministers in, in the pre-bubble, uh, pre-post era said, if I have the money, I'll spend it, which is not very good fiscal that's what he said <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everybody knows who it was but he's in retirement now like the rest of us um, and um, so so they spent so they increased uh, wages public service wages and uh, they, they you know expanded programs of, of this kind of, uh, in a way that could not be sustained once the property boom mm-hmm. was over because it wasn't just a price boom it was a construction boom as well now, when that all stopped when the construction more or less ground to a halt, when, which happened as soon as the property prices started to turn down, people said, oh, I was only going to buy that house because I thought I was going to be able to sell it as a profit later, but if the prices are going down, I don't want to buy the house at all. So when that all stopped, the revenue stopped coming in, and suddenly it was like Wiley Coyote. You know Wiley Coyote? He's the character in the, in the cartoons, and he's being chased by Roadrunner, and he comes to the cliff, and he's rushing along, and he, he suddenly discovers that he's on, over the cliff. And it, we were over the cliff then in 2008, and, and, yeah, and, and certainly 2008, uh, and suddenly there was, no, there was no revenue there. and So that's where the, the fiscal crisis came from. It didn't help that the government had guaranteed the banks and liabilities, and the bank's losses became more and more evident during 2010, and the market said, oh, wait a minute, we don't know where this is going to end. Uh, So that did contribute, certainly, to the loss of market confidence. Wage competitors would mention briefly, because in a way that was tied in with the fact that the the government's, uh, the the government pay rates went up and up and up, because the government said, well, we have the money, so we should pay our public servants uh, very well, which would be nice if you had the money, but they didn't have the money on a long-term basis, they only had it on a short-term basis. So that infected infected the wage competitiveness through the whole economy, but of course it was especially in in the public service. so that, that's how those crises... And the funny thing was that we had a fiscal crisis in the 1980s as well. Mm. And it really was a bit of a surprise uh, to you know anybody who's a little bit old enough to remember the 1980s uh, that it, it came around again so quickly. You would have thought that the pain of adjusting to the fiscal crisis of the 1980s um, would have been severe enough that politicians would say, well, wait a minute, we don't want to get into that. We must be cautious about overspending because the fiscal crisis and there's a distinction here now i think between what our experience in in the uh, dublin government 
And the London government, which also faced a fiscal crisis, a banking crisis and that, the London government, um, relatively, its crisis was less severe, but and it had sort of got things under control by 2010. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But instead of saying we must continue to bring full employment back and to keep public services going, the, the um, uh, Tory government that, that took power then after the Labour government was, uh, lost the election, uh, they took a more ideological position saying we really want a small, small government environment. We really need to... Um, so they, they went for austerity as a policy. Mm. Whereas in, in the Republic of Ireland, the government's... Uh, it looks like austerity as well in a way. It's austerity, but it's not. It's austerity due to lack of resources. The government didn't. It couldn't even put its hands on borrowed funds mm. to keep things going on the level they were, and so it had to cut back. It, it didn't say, "Oh, we think it's you know we should have a lean and, and mean economy." They said, "We owe money," yeah. and, and that's and how it's it. leading into the the IMF and the borrowing from the IMF and the Troika. In, in 2010, which was actually a measure which allowed the cutback and the adjustment of the fiscal position to be spaced out over a few years instead of being cut off, mm. you know, in a cliff edge So at, at the end of 2010 when the government effectively lost access to the financial markets at any reasonable price. Sure. Um, so maybe we'll just park that for a second, but going back to maybe the start of when things kicked off and when we talk about the banking crisis and you mentioned the, the, 
the moment where we're sort of where the wily coyote hanging off the cliff and it becomes sort of obvious that the banks are are in trouble. You you were this is before your time in the central bank, but what your thoughts were at the time and, and did you have any views on, on how this, this could be could, could be tackled? Yeah. Well, I actually thought that the Americans would find a solution to this. So the government had guaranteed all the banks' liabilities. So that doesn't, people said, oh, it's a guarantee of 450 billion or some huge number like that of, of, of uh, bank liabilities. But of course, the government was never only going to have to spend more than the shortfall. So the government, the government, the bank's liabilities were 450 million, but they did have assets. But even though it was 450 billion, it was never going to be that amount, but it was going to be a substantial amount. And the question is how how to manage out from from here. Uh, would there be some way of of bailing in bondholders or something like that? Very difficult to do it um, from legal point of view, particularly the legal situation in, in Ireland. But I thought that the Americans would land on a good way of sharing and distributing the losses in the in the banking system and moving forward because they have gone through banking crises time and again. They've got a very sophisticated administrative system. And I expected Obama and his advisors will come up with some approach, general approach, maybe a little bit more of inflation for a while so that the liabilities in real terms are declined, maybe some kind of bail-in programs. The problem was that of all the countries, even though they had been the, the start and the epicenter of the crisis at the beginning, the American banks did not actually lose uh, the, the the government actually didn't actually have to pay any net amount to the banks. It got all the money it invested in the banks in the crisis back because the losses were not all that severe compared to other countries. So all other countries, the big countries that you've been talking about, Spain, Germany, uh, Belgium, Britain, all of these countries, big blocks of tax money were spent to to um, uh, to rescue the bank the creditors of the banks, but the Americans didn't. They and so by the time, say January, February, March of two thousand nine, that I was thinking the Americans will come up with an approach, and then we can fold in and do what do what the Americans are doing. They were realizing, mm, I think we're probably all right here. I think we're going to be all right. Um, so they didn't come up with a particular solution because they had no particular problem to solve. I always felt. The, it's clear what has to be done here now. Now the government's guaranteed the banks. The banks need to be set on a proper footing again. They need to have new capital injected to risk-bearing capital because they've lost all of their capital in, and more than all of their capital, but most of them. Uh, and it's just a question of calculating how much that is. Probably government has enough resources to do it. And actually, that's what happened in the end. They did. Government did have enough resources painful though it was, and, and that the in, injections of money into the banks were only a, a, a smallish, you know, medium-sized portion of the amount of money that the government had to had to uh, save to get its finances back on track. But there were a lot of hiccups on the way. Mm. And so just going back briefly to um, the bank guarantee and that decision, look, it's talked about a lot. When, my interpretation, it seems... It was something that had to be done in a hurry, and but if you think of, if you think about it in coronavirus times, decisions have to be made in a hurry, and it's better to think, act quickly, and then maybe tidy up the details later. 
I wonder, could that approach have been taken in that act quickly to solve an immediate crisis, but perhaps go back and tidy up the details? Uh, it, it seems that once the further information was came apparent, it was probably hard to, to tidy up the details. Well, of course, they should have known more of what they were dealing with in advance. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. So then, then they could have handled it better and in, in a more nuanced way. I think you're absolutely right that it was very good to take early decisive action. And within days, other countries were taking decisive actions of different types. And a lot of, country, a lot of people have told me, you know, senior civil servants in other countries have said, when the, when the Irish guarantee came in, we thought this is very impressive, decisive action. Um, of course, it put pressure on them to, to match it, which they did. But I think the mistake that was made, I think there were two mistakes made. First of all, the, the decision was taken to tie down the guarantee, absolutely un, make it absolutely unquestionable and cover almost all of the liabilities of the banks. Now, there are certain exceptions, but very wide ranging. So it was too broad and too much tied down. So, for example, Germany in a few days later said, oh, no, savers need not worry. They are guaranteed by the government. And did they write a big law so that it could never be challenged? No, they made a broad political statement, which was sufficient. And um, I don't know whether that would have been sufficient in Ireland, but the, it was too broad and too tied down. Um, the second mistake that was made was the handling of a completely failed bank um, uh, well, two banks, Irish Nationwide Building Society was a smaller concern, but, but Anglo-Irish Bank had completely failed. They didn't realise how deep the losses were. Anglo-Irish Bank lost something like 40% of its total assets. So that's a huge proportion. Banks do not fail like that. Um, it's very unusual. You, banks might fail because they lost 10% or 15%, but this was 40%. They should have realised that this bank was should not have been allowed to go forward. And it was very, very risky to guarantee that bank's liabilities and leave the management in charge. In fact, there wasn't um, uh, much of an abuse but in, in, the, um, uh, in, the, in the months around that. There was a lot of talk about court cases and that around it. But it was a very risky thing to do at that time. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, so then, so you sort of touched on this already that you were, you were, it was clear from you to you that we need to recapitalize uh, the banks or whatever. When you stepped in then as governor, uh, what were the first steps then in terms of guiding the recovery and, and how, how, did, how did that progress? Well, we had a, uh, our design was to, to make, make a, an, an, an overall calculation of the losses of the banks and how much money need to be injected to recapitalize them. And this took a, well, it, actually, it took a lot longer than would have been really desirable, partly because the losses were being defined to some extent by NAMA. NAMA was the asset management company set up by the government to buy from the banks all of their property-related loans, the ones that are, say, developer loans and all sorts of property-related loans. There, those were where the big losses were lying, but it, nobody knew how big they were. There was no point in the central bank saying, oh, I'd say those losses would be X or Y. Those were going to be crystallized within a matter of months by NAMA actually buying those loans. So there's no point in saying, oh, I think the loans are worth 100 when NAMA was only going to pay 30 for them. 
and we had to wait until NAMA decided was it going to be 30 or it's going to be 130 relative to what we, we expected. So it took a long time. That's what we hoped would 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 um, fix the situation, put enough government, new government money, but after government money, not many taxpayers were, not many shareholders were willing to put up new money into the banks uh, to set them on their feet again. When the calculations were made, including NAMA's calculations, we said, we have to have this by the end of March 2010. NAMA said, yeah, we'd have, probably have a fair number of the calculations done. When it came to the end of March, they had very, very little of the calculations done, very tiny proportion of the, And so they gave an, a, a figure for how much they were going to pay for this first tranche of loans that they were going to buy. And we went out and I said, okay, well, with that, if that's going to be the same percentage for the other loans, it's okay. The government only has to put in, I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but they were considerably lower than we had expected and considerably lower than they ended up. So that was the first thing I did was to try to get a team of people together to make those calculations. And I have to say, it didn't really go very well. It didn't go well because we came to a number that looked affordable, but it was too low. If we had come to the real number, which was considerably higher, it might not have done us any good because the number would, was so high then that it would have caused us immediately, caused the government to lose the confidence of the markets immediately. It lost the confidence of the market six months later. So even though that didn't go very well, it probably didn't really make that much difference in the wider scheme of things. At what point then did you see a turning point or was there any moment where it felt like uh, we're actually getting, getting a handle on this and we're getting things under control? Well, of course, we, we had to, government had to go to the IMF and the uh, Troika uh, lenders. Uh, this discussion of the program was not very uh, encouraging because the rates of interest that were going to be charged on this new lend- lending were very high. They weren't as high as the market would have charged, but they were high all the same. They were high because of a funny um, complication. The IMF has a schedule of the interest rate charges. It basically charges low rates of interest on borrowing from the IMF. But you've got a kind of what they call a quota in the IMF, and that says how much you're really entitled to borrow. And we were sums of money that we needed to borrow because of, of the scale of the fiscal problem and the banking problem were uh, much higher than our quota. So we were going to have to pay very high surcharges at the IMF. Surcharges were designed to discourage countries from borrowing that amount of money from the IMF. The IMF was putting up a third of the money. European lenders uh, were putting up two thirds, but they were saying, we don't have rules because it's new for us. We're using the IMF's rules. So we had to pay the surcharge on all of those loans. So many of us, myself included, thought, this is very, very tight now. It's not clear that the, the government can really move forward over the next number of years if we're going to have to pay these high interest rates on the loans. And we thought, well, we, this is our best option is to accept the loans and then see what we can negotiate from, from now on in. And that actually, so that was the end of 2010. But by the middle of 2011, the European lenders had realized when they were looking at Greece so this is ridiculous. We can't be charging these enormously high interest rates. It doesn't make any sense. Greece will never get out of this. So they lowered, they said, no, okay, we're, the IMF can do what it likes. We're going to have low interest rates. It'll still be 
uh, it, it's, it's fine for us because the interest rates are low generally. And they said, oh, what about Ireland and Portugal? Oh, yeah, we'll do the same for Ireland. So as soon as middle of 2011, it started to look as if we have a turning point. Um, we could, we're going to be, could be all right now. But there were still a number of things to be fixed. One was get rid of this IMF high, high interest rate. To do that, we need to get access to the financial markets at low interest rates and deal with the loans that were made by the euro system, by the central bank, really, to the, uh, the failed banks, Anglo-Irish Bank, Irish Nation, might be said, deal with those in such a way that they didn't suddenly have to become repaid by the government, which would have destabilized the situation again. So we need to do those two things. And by the end of, by the middle of 2013, we had solved those those problems. So you mentioned the, the cheap loan, and this is, I presume this, there's a legacy of this experience that we're experiencing now that in the Eurozone we have access to cheap credit to help countries get through the coronavirus pandemic. Well, yes, interest rates are very important to remember that interest rates are low now worldwide and not just because of central banks. Yes, central banks are, are working hard to uh, keep interest rates low, including in the euro area and including for peripheral countries. But... Um, but the lowering of interest rates is a worldwide phenomenon over the last uh, number of decades. And so that's something that's here to stay. So unless you misbehave and lose confidence of the markets, you should be able to retain access to low interest rates, which certainly will help us, regardless of what central banks do, in, in, the, you know, in, in, in paying for these enormous costs of uh, supporting people's incomes and then paying for the medical costs during the COVID crisis. Sure. So you mentioned then there's two things left on to deal with. Um, and the loans, you say, to, to the failed banks, I presume this is the, the, the promissory note deal. This is, appears to be another turning point. Perhaps you could explain what the whole uh, promissory note is for the uninitiated um, and how, how important that was, because it seems to be that that really helped in terms of gaining the confidence of markets and helping us uh, out of the recession. So even though the, the, those loans, those banks were guaranteed by the government, as soon as the deposits had matured and the bonds had matured, the banks had to pay it back to the bondholders and the depositors. And the hole had to be filled by somebody. And the natural person to fill it is the central bank. Uh, but the central bank said, "Look, we can't lend into a bank that has no money. Banks need to be uh, banks need to be adequately capitalised." And the government uh, fully acknowledged that. And the government said, "Well, don't worry. We will give to the banks a, a an asset which will allow them to be adequately capitalised." And this asset was a promissory note, and it was promised by government to pay certain amounts of money over a period of time. And those, those promissory notes had to be because of the rules of the ECB, they, they had to, they, they basically embodied the high interest rates that were prevailing in 2010. They were sort of built into the, the structure of the promissory notes. So those were a big drag on the, on the government in the years ahead. Um, so it was quite, sort of unsatisfactory, done in, in a bit of a hurry to, to uh, and also under the pressure of the high interest rates. So it was going to be a big burden and a threat to financial stability because if the government is, hasn't stable finances. So, but after the liquidation of Anglo-Irish Bank or IBRC as it had become in early 2013, following lots of discussions between officials in Dublin, uh, how, how to manage this in a way that would be sensible for central banks and sensible for the government. We converted 
agreed to, the government agreed to a conversion of these promissory notes into long-term bonds. The bonds are at floating rates of interest, so the interest rates floated down as confidence was restored. And those bonds were held by the central bank. Some of them are still held today. Uh, of course, it's, they'll, they'll sell them, and the central bank is selling them as, as um, at least according to a certain schedule that was committed. Actually, they're selling a lot faster than that. They sell them as soon as possible, subject to financial stability conditions. But the fact that they were the interest rates floated down, and the fact that the central bank was holding on to those uh, for for the period during which interest rates were high, has meant that the interest cost of the government is really quite low, and that made a dramatic change to its creditworthiness of the government. It's comparable. It's probably it's more valuable. In, in, uh, than the reduction of interest rates on the Troika loans, but more valuable than the early repayment of the IMF loans. So it's an important financial uh, uh, contribution to uh, removing financial instability. Mm. And um, I think Enda Kenny at the time described it as going from a short-term loan to a low interest rate mortgage, long-term mortgage, which I think is an intuitive way of understanding it. But one... one reason why there might have been pushback is that perhaps when you're creating this you're essentially creating a loan it seems and that means that the ECB would have less control over the money the money supply would was that was there any pushback from that context or when, when, when trying to do this deal well I, I the ECB obviously very very careful as I think I suggested early on one of the things the central banks um, really a core part of their mandate is not just to be lashing out money everywhere and they want to be sure that this wasn't uh, that, that nobody was proposing something that could be seen as a, as an illegitimate handout. Um, so uh, that's why it had to, had to be thought through very carefully in terms of the uh, contracts that are involved, uh, the mandate of the ECB, the mandate of the Central Bank of Ireland. But everybody was happy in the end, and it, it really worked out to everybody's benefit because it's no good for for the ECB and the rest of the euro area. If one country is having a, a wave of financial instability because of uh, government, government uh, uh, indebtedness that arose in the first instance because the government was trying to maintain financial stability when they brought in the guarantee in 2008. You know, it is, it's uh, incentive compatible for all concerns. So that's rule one, I think, <laughs> of negotiation. <laughs> um, just to wrap up then, um, in terms of Irish bank regulation going forward, um, do you see the systems being in place to try and help uh, stop such a, a crisis from happening in future to making sure that things are things are stable, uh, especially given, I suppose, we're, we're coming into another potential recession? Um, do you think we're, we're better placed going forward than we were maybe um, in the early 2000s? Well, a number of things are different. Um, bank regulation is done from Europe now. European Central Bank has its whole branch, which is almost... Probably uh, half of the organisation is bank uh, supervision. The other thing, more even more important than that, is capital requirements have been greatly increased in the years since the crisis. That's all over the world, not just in Ireland. So, so the ratios, bank capital is of course is a is in the eye of the beholder. There are accounting systems, and the accounting systems have been tightened. Still, you never know. Sometimes surprises show you that your assets aren't worth as much as, they, as you thought they were. We're never going to say oh, the bank capital is X percent. That's what the accountants say. But they are higher, so they have a greater ability to, to absorb losses. Um, 
so so there are uh, those tougher regulation te- regulation from that takes a, a distant view I think is always helpful uh, Irish people looking at Spanish banks and Belgian people looking at Irish banks and, and higher capital gives you a certain amount of security but I think they're also need to be aware of the fact that with all that tight, tighter regulation on banks, there has been a growth in non-bank um, financial intermediation across Europe, across the world. And so so problems can arise in non-banks, which can ripple back into the rest of the economy. And that would be, I think, the, for the future agenda. I think it's a constant um, task to improve the quality and scope uh, of uh, of regulation and supervision of the system as a whole. And I would be looking out beyond the banking system, not just at the banking system. I'm not saying the banking system is perfectly all right forever, but also looking at beyond the banking system. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Professor Honan. I know we're, we're coming to the end of our time, so I really appreciate it. And uh, a very enlightening discussion. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this first part of a special double header to launch a new podcast title I have a very special guest up tomorrow which I hope you'll all enjoy also spread the word with friends and colleagues far and wide and if you enjoy what you hear consider subscribing at patreon.com forward slash at the margin talk tomorrow What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.